0: Beloved, the main reason we assemble is outlined by the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 when he tells the Ephesian elders that he commends them to the word, to the Lord and to the word of his grace, which is able to build them up and give them the inheritance among all who are being sanctified. Paul also says in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that all scripture is God-breathed. That's everything written in the Word of God is given from directly from God through the prophets and apostles that wrote them. All scriptures God breathed in is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that maturity is impossible without growth. That growth is impossible without nutrition and resistance and that's what we're about we're about the nutrition phase because the resistance phase is inevitable it's coming the things we're going to study and feast on tonight are going to be necessary for our use tomorrow and in the days ahead and we don't know the next time we'll get to feed We don't know the next time we'll get this kind of meal but we have it tonight and it's a great privilege The Lord Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be a new teacher or a paraclete uh, to come alongside the disciples, actually to indwell them and to empower them to be His witnesses. The Holy Spirit lives in us now, and He fills us with the Word of Christ as we avail ourselves of it. And He uses it in us when we're walking and going through this life by the Spirit. And um, that's what we're about. We want the Spirit to have His way. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Uh, if If there's a need for a repentance... (laughs) <laughs> that would be a change of thinking, a rejection of uh, a common problem that we often don't feel. And it's, I will have my way, that, that willfulness that grips us at times. Maybe that's the thing that you need to take to him. But whatever the sin issue is that you may have uh, not brought to the Lord, this is a chance to self-identify, to self-assess, First Corinthians 11 style, and judge yourself that you not be judged. Let's Pray. Thank you, Father, for this assembly, for those who assemble this way to bring honor to you in our lives by taking in your word. Father, being blessed by you in its assimilation, in its study, in its reflection, and in its application, but Father, to the higher purpose, the greater end, not of our diversion or even our stability, but of your glory in providing us that stability. Father, you're the refuge, you're the rock. We take our cover and our refuge in you, and we ask that you'd strengthen us better now to see you as you reveal yourself here in Isaiah. We pray in Jesus' name, amen at Christmas time the idea of our Savior our Lord as a baby captivates us it always has since the shepherds first saw him and since Simeon held him the idea of an innocent vulnerable child who had come in the same flesh we inhabit, yet without sin, born of a virgin, without sin, able therefore to take our sin on himself, but born as a baby, the infinitely powerful, omnipotent God in the flesh, the weakened flesh of the helpless, the absolutely helpless newborn. If you think about it, it really is a a, a powerful differential in our thinking, the infinite power totally helpless, but, but, in, but priceless, baby, all of them, priceless. What's a, what value does God place on his image bearers? The blood of Jesus was the purchase price for us. I'll read with you just for a moment what the Bible says about this man, Simeon, that held Jesus. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The consolation of Israel. That's not just that Rome gets put in its place, right? God's message isn't political stability. It begins with a spiritual relationship with him for people that otherwise are at war. And the consolation of Israel will ultimately be the cross and resurrection of Christ, and his return to establish his kingdom on that basis of his completed work. It had been revealed, revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Christ is the Greek for the Hebrew Mashiach. Mashiach, from mashach, the verb to pour, to anoint. It means when you say Christ, you we're saying the one, the the chosen one. It's another word for celebrity. The one. As in not me, as in not you, as in not anyone else. Christian rock star or otherwise. There is no other. The one. And he came to in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God. Does that language set well with you that you bless God? Blessing is when you say something good, favorable, as opposed to cursing, which is to say something unfavorable. He blessed God, that's to praise him, and said, now, Lord, you're releasing your bond to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have senior salvation, soteria in Greek, Yeshua, or like Yeshua, a word on that same basis in Hebrew, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, quoting Isaiah chapter 9. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said, now, we've talked to the Lord, to God. Now we're, going to talk to, now we're going to talk to Mary, his mother. Behold, the child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And now there's another differential. I like to point these things out about Christmas. Infinite power, totally helpless baby, can't even crawl, can't even roll over. Um, what, what else do we see in differential? We see perfect righteousness with no basis in himself for God's wrath, yet being crushed for our sins. That massive, infinite differential between my sin and God's righteousness and how his birth is a is a guarantee of his death and suffering for us this is what christmas is really about it's about the cross and the manger is a beautiful and romantic scene i think it was probably a really difficult thing for them but it's a beautiful romantic scene for us but it's shadowed always by the cross And what Jesus had to do for you and me is always on our minds when we rejoice because we have eternal life in him, and our life is rich because of the cross. All right, Isaiah chapter 30 tonight. We're going to actually finish Isaiah 30, if you can believe it. I think I said that two weeks ago and meant it. Now I really mean it. Now, to do Isaiah 30, I've got to do Isaiah chapters 1 through 29 just in a quick review. I'm just kidding. I'm not, not going to do that. But I do want you to see the whole uh, poetic prophecy together. And so, in chapters 28 through 33, as we've said, you have these six woes that I think are how Isaiah structures these poems. And they're portraits of failure on man's part and success on God's part. That's always one way to talk about it. Anthropologically, we get failure. Theologically, we get success. And so we should be cynics of what man can do and optimists about what God can do. And that's true in chapters 28 through 33. 28 and 29, we said our moral failure because the nation of Israel and Judah, two states, one nation, one national Uh, group with two states the northern kingdom southern kingdom they've rejected relationship and so they're morally failing and that moral failure uh, failure in 30 through 33 is exhibiting itself and they're seeking to um, go after foreign help for their problem with god is there anything in your life that's like that where you have something where God has said, this is how it is, and then you've sought some other power, some other source to solve that problem that God said? It's an interesting um, pattern. And um, don't do that. Don't run from God. And don't please don't also get mystical and say, well, if, if God wanted we to, us to fly, he would have given us wings so we can't get on airplanes. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying if God has said, especially if he said something, This is the word of God, and I'm looking for any way I can to construct a powerful response where I can do something other than he said. And so you go to a lesser power. Anything you go to is going to be less than God, and I've seen it. People will go to uh, modern mysticism, the New Age movement, um, the secret kind of stuff, and they'll, they'll, they'll start dabbling in crystals and see if the universe can align against what God's word clearly says because they feel it. They feel a certain way, and so they start wondering if God's word is so. It's very applicable, in other words, what's happening in Israel as they reject God's word. In 30 through 33, they're going after Egypt. The people in Judah are going after Egypt. Do you remember why? Because God is correcting them militarily with the Assyrians. He's bringing the, the paddle or the whip, the, the rod of correction, in the people in the army of Assyria... And so Israel knows the Assyria is about to get them. So they're looking for a way to defeat the Assyrians or to forestall their destruction. So they're going to go make alliances with Egypt. But that's not the need. Their problem isn't Assyria. Their problem is God. And so one way they might do it is try to build more tanks, build more more chariots, recruit more soldiers, right? Let's build up internally. We'll build our defenses. We'll build back better or whatever, people will say. We're going to be... Um, Judah strong, we're going to solve it. The problem isn't the military threat, it's God who's, who's bringing it. So, you know, if you if you were able to somehow beat God's rod of the Assyrians, um, do you think he has other rods stacked up? You know, we, well, we, we got the Assyrians whooped them. well, who's next? Just stop digging and the hole will stop getting deeper. But they're trying to find relief from divine discipline in the work of humans, human agency. And where we find ourselves closing down chapter 30 is that they're the rebellious children who are summarized as executing a plan that isn't mine. That's joining Egypt in this alliance. And I don't know why Isaiah 30 has taken me longer, except that um, if I sit on it for a second, there are more insights happen. And I'm, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, accessible chunks of Pure gold as we do some excavation. On excavating the Word, let me share something about my philosophy of ministry with you that might encourage you as you go forward. We gave Bibles to children yesterday in our Good News Club, and I don't know if they'll ever read them. I don't know if they're, that they made it home. We put them in backpacks. People got on buses. So Uh, Not many people in New England get off their school bus with a Bible they got at school, but uh, (laughs) that happened yesterday. And I told the kids a story before we handed Bibles out. I said that there was once a wealthy man who had a gold mine that he had discovered after a lifetime of searching in uh, one of the western states, let's say in Arizona, and he found the largest gold mine that uh, anybody had found in decades, and um, it was through a lifetime of search and study and he finally found this mine and he had two grown sons and he was thankful that toward the end of his professional life he was going to be able to leave an inheritance to his sons and they would be very wealthy men perhaps the one son he had let's say his name was Ray Earl Ray Earl was a hard-working man and he did whatever his father asked him to do all his life and he was good at uh, running towards labor and duty and whatever was necessary. He had learned early the secret of hard work, but his brother, Jim Ed, was not a hardworking man, and he would much rather play than work, and he'd never learned the satisfaction of actually working. And so his father divided the mine territory that he'd found, his claim, into two portions as equal as he could make them with the knowledge that these boys would have to work very hard to become the wealthiest men, uh, perhaps, of their generation. They would have to work. They'd have to dig in that gold mine if they wanted to have the money that was in there. It was there for them. It was given to them, but they would have to exploit it. They'd have to learn. They'd have to dig. They would have to get the excavation know-how and equipment. They'd have to build companies to make something of that mine and really spend time and energy and make it a focus of their lives. And the father knew that Ray Earl was going to do that, And he was suspicious that Jim Ed probably wouldn't. And then we handed the children their Bibles. Because it takes work to study God's word. Because it is an infinite wealth of gold, beyond gold, and riches to know God. But it doesn't do us any good just sitting there with our name on it. We have to spend time. We have to do the hard work of study, and it's not hard in the sense that if you study long enough, then you know what the words mean. Eventually, you will. It's hard in the sense that you read something you don't understand, and it seems to be contradictory or counterintuitive, or I don't get how this can be so. We just read in Psalm 19 that all of the creation is proclaiming the glory of God, and then it says in the middle, there are no words. How is it proclaiming God's glory if there are no words and you have to think through? Remember that contradiction? There's a contradiction there. And the hard work is to say, okay, I trust you, God. Help me understand. And that confusion is uncomfortable and we want to put it down and not be uncomfortable. We want to watch uh, something passive that will entertain us and distract us from the the, the sliding um, grains of sand in the hourglass. But but we know better we know that we have the gold mine we know that it takes excavation exploitation we know that what we dig what we get what we mine in this gold mine is ours because god has given it to us and that's true of isaiah 30 uh, so often remember the fun we've had in verse 15 in verse 15 in repentance and rest you'll be saved god told judah in quietness and trust is your strength he doesn't want you to spaz and anxiously look about you and be that person that thinks it's all bad all the time oh no oh no oh, no he wants you to rest in him and be stabilized and be relaxed as you're trusting consistently in him but here's the tragedy and the horror they were not willing remember the fun we've had in verse 17 or no verse 18 therefore the lord longs to be gracious to you and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you and we said this is the god who waits and what's god waiting on he's waiting to bless He's standing by with the decanter wanting to pour so that that cup runneth over. And you and I are sitting there with our hand over our cup. Oh, no, thank you. And that's the problem. He's not waiting on anything but us to respond, to say, to take up and read, to hear what he said and avail ourselves of the riches that he wants to give us. And so uh, that's a tragic truth about Judah but listen to the nature of God, how he longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How happy are all those who wait for him. He's waiting to bless you. Are you waiting on him? Are you living in anticipation of his blessing? Verse 19, O people in Zion inhabit in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears, he will answer you. This takes us to sort of the outline. I want to review the outline briefly of chapter 30. On the inside, you have what's coming in the future. And it goes, in some cases, to the very distant future, still future to our time. On the outside, you have the contemporary struggle and God's dealing with them and with the Assyrians. Verses 1-7, through seven, Egypt isn't going to be a help to you and they're going to be thrashed for trying. And verses 27-33, through 33, we will cover tonight, where Assyria isn't a threat. So Egypt isn't a help and Assyria is not a threat. That's on the outside. That's the sandwich bread. Okay? But the meat and cheese in the middle of the sandwich is what we've been working on, these coming human events and coming divine events. The rejection, they're going to reject the word and not benefit from God's blessing in the near term and down the, down the road. But also, God is going to be glorious in restoring them as a nation. Let me see where we, where we pick up. We're tonight trying to knock out the end of the, the affair And we have plenty of time to do it. Woe to the rebellious children. In verse 1 declares the Lord who execute a plan but not mine. Make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin. Who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me. Take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. The shelter of the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. It's real clear in the English translation that the problem is that they're going to to take refuge in pharaoh or in egypt when they should take refuge in yahweh for your princes their princes with his princes literally meaning the princes of the of judah are at zone zone and their ambassadors arrive at hannes that means the, they're throughout the whole country they're basically in egypt everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them you think that you're going to be able to to save face or 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 boast in the success you had with your alliance. We figured it out. We beat the Assyrians. No, you're going to be ashamed. They are no help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. That's what these Egyptians will be to you. And then you have this really interesting statement about the animals of of the wilderness, the oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of distress and anguish from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasure on camel's humps. The tribute that the Judahites are sending to the Egyptians would take them through this territory. And he's saying, you don't want to go that way. That's not a good trip for you to make because of what it is. So he's describing the the journey through this area. They carry their their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them. So they're carrying the, 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 the treasure, but the people are no profit. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahav, who has been exterminated. The idea of Rahav, it's the mighty, um, impossible-to-defeat uh, mythical creature, apparently, that um, has been completely vanquished. So you think that Egyptians will be helped. I mean, they've got, they've got historic cavalry forces. They've got a big population. They have a big army. Um, all kinds of resources in the Egyptian power down there in the southwest. But no, the great beast is going to be just rendered useless. So then that was that first chunk, we said, in verses 1 through 7. And then we, we close in to these current events. Um, I'm sorry, the, the, what's going on in the future. So that first piece, verses 8 through 17. Now go, write it on a tablet before them and scribe it on a scroll that they, they may, it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. Here we are reading. Here we are reading the record of God's appeal and their rejection in Isaiah's day, at least partly uh, part of his ministry. He says, for this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the Torah of Yahweh, the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers or prophets, you must not see visions. You must not have prophetic revelation that you deliver to us. They say to the prophets, to those who see visions, you must not give us a vision uh, of what is right. Or they've translated prophesy it to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. This is the classic problem we're dealing with in our culture today. It really is applicable where you don't say what is true. You say what is unoffensive. Because if the truth is offensive, well, that's, for, that's banned because the only real truth is don't offend me. Except Christians can be offended. That's fine. Step all over us. Call us bigots. Call us hateful. Say all you want about our commitments to God and his plan, his design, his blessing, and how anything but his blessing, for example, in marriage is a curse and it destroys you, destroys your soul, destroys your spouse or the person you're pretending like is your spouse. I mean, forget all the truth and just don't offend people that are not uh, willing to hear from God. That's never, it's not new, but we can describe it as political correctness today and um, the way, the, the truth, the opinion of God, which defines what is actual reality, that's where fact comes from, is God's opinion, um, that's rejected. And they're, they're doing that here. You don't give us your revelation. Rather, speak to us pleasant or smooth words, prophesy illusions. Now, they don't think that they're asking for illusions, but that is what they're asking for. Get out of this, out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Let, literally, let, it, let, it, let the Holy One of Israel depart from our face. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel: Since you've rejected this word and have put your trust in op- oppression and guile and have relied on them, see, God is telling them the truth. What you're after, you think is going to save you? It's oppression and guile. It's it's not. It's it's deception. You're asking. For deception as the solution. We do this in our time too. We don't take time to think about what God has said and meditate on it, reflect on it, talk to him about it, and deal in spiritual life with the spiritual realities you can't see or feel. And we go for something that'll stimulate us or solve our momentary uh, feels. And uh, and what you're doing is you're further enslaving yourself. We've used the illustration of substance abuse and and other addictive things that I'm going to use this to to solve my problem. Well, your problem is that you need the Word, you need God, you need a relationship to grow and mature, and you're going to take that need, that thirst, and you're going to try to quench it with something that won't do any good. It reminds me of a story Jerry Clower used to tell um, about a man who had a, a, a mule and he wasn't good at keeping livestock. He was new at it, but he had a mule that someone had sold him, and so he. Uh, he, he came to the fellows at the barbershop and, and said, um, my mule has colic. I guess that's like a, I don't know, some sort of infection thrush or something. My mule has colic and he's sick and he won't, uh, he won't eat. He seems like he's getting worse. What do you guys suggest? And the, one of the fellows at the barbershop put his paper down and he said, well, I had a mule that had colic and I gave him, uh, I gave him turpentine. You gave him turpentine, Yeah. I gave him uh, two cups of turpentine twice a day. Uh, He was a big mule. Maybe your mule isn't as big as mine, but I gave him two cups of turpentine twice a day. And he said, really? Yeah, that's how I treated colic. Well, the fellow came back a couple of days later, and he said, I gave my mule turpentine. I just did one cup twice a day. And on the third day, the mule dropped dead. And the guy with the newspaper said, yeah, mine died too. And that's what the Word of God, when, when, it, when your thirst is the Word of God, and what you get is turpentine or gasoline or something that wouldn't serve, uh, you're poisoning yourself. And that's what Israel's doing. You've put, you put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them. Where's your trust supposed to go? In Yahweh. What are you supposed to be drinking? Good, clean water. Where will you get that clean water? Well, the Lord will lead you beside the quiet waters. He has what you need. And so you go to Him for it. But we won't. We rebel. We... We don't feel like it, and we are going to be enslaved to our feelings. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. Meaning you've you've completely shattered the glass, remember? And you can't take just a part of it. It won't hold water now, but at least we could scoop up some ash out of the fireplace. You can't even have a piece left. It's going to be such a massive shattering. That's pretty specific, isn't it? That language, that poetic picture. That's how, I mean, these people were smart. And we're not. But we think we are because we have transistors. Some of us are. Um, but, but anyway, uh, the Bible uh, gives you these images of, um, of powerful destruction. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, said, In repentance and rest you'll be saved, and in quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. We spent a lot of time on trusting in God and uh, battle drill one. And you said no, for we'll flee on horses, and so therefore you will flee. But you're not in a good way. And you said, we'll ride on swift horses. And the Lord says, therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. And why is this? What are they running from? They're running from God's rod, the rod God's wielding to correct them. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you're, you're left as a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill. What is left from the army is that it once was here. That's the idea, is that it's, it's a destruction that makes you a proverb. Because people can see your representation, but uh, you've been routed and destroyed. This is God's uh, 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 warning for them. Well, that's that's that piece from verses 8 through 17 of their rejection and rebellion. Now we turn the corner, in verses 18 through 26, which we just completed, of God's promised blessing for them. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. And we said for, uh, we can apply that very easily for stronger reason if this is true for his covenant people, the apple of his eye, the nation of Israel, that he'd set up the covenant with Abraham and then David and then um, promised the new covenant and we have the Sinai covenant that was a temporary arrangement at Mount Sinai called the Mosaic Law and you have all these things that God's dealing with these people Um, For stronger reason, you have been baptized in union with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit or by Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, You have a greater expectation, perhaps, even than the apple of God's eye because you, the bride of Christ, are his forever. And so uh, don't ever miss this idea about God, that he is not desiring for you to come back to. Remember the prodigal son illustration. He's the father who is waiting for you to come home. For the Lord is God of justice and how happy are all those who, same word here as this word, who wait for him. O people in Zion, inhabit in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he'll answer you. This is one of those passages that won't allow people to be biblical and anti-Semitic. Because this is a future restoration. We haven't seen it yet. There was a temporary repentance in Hezekiah's day, but it wasn't complete. It was led from the top down, but there's coming a better example of a top-down restoration when Jesus establishes his kingdom over Israel, over the nations. In verse 20, although the Lord has given you bread of privation, water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. When will they see Yahweh? From the days of, of Ahaz and then... Hezekiah, and then, and then Hezekiah's son, in, in Isaiah's day, um, Hezekiah's son um, Manasseh. When will they see the Lord? I believe verse 20 is the second advent when they look on the one they've pierced. That's, this is God's promise. And who's he talking to? He's talking to Jerusalem and Zion, to the people of Judah. When this happens, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. There will be spiritual empowerment for them to walk with God. Spiritual empowerment for them to walk. What does that sound like? What does it sound like to have spiritual empowerment to walk with God? Well, that sounds like the New Covenant promised ministries of the Holy Spirit for God's people. When he's going to put his, people, his, his spirit in the hearts of those people and write his word on the tablets of their heart. And he promised that to whom? He didn't say that to the body of Christ. He said that because it didn't exist. He said that to Judah and Israel in uh, Jeremiah 31. Several places this promised new covenant is established. I think that's what he's talking about. You will defile your graven images overlaid with silver, your molten images plated with gold. You'll scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. And then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread for the yield of the ground. It will be rich and plenteous on that day. Your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. So temporal blessing, prosperity, material blessing for them as he wants to. Remember what he said. He's waiting to be gracious to them. He wants to do this for them. He is. Uh, he, it is a Psalm twenty three kind of banquet, where he's standing there with that decanter. Remember that image. He wants to pour, and that's. So why isn't he? Why God? Why aren't you pouring? Maybe he's. Uh, maybe he's blessing you, with uh, the training that amounts to strengthened faith as you trust him through, through what you consider to be a privation. It happens. That's how he builds proven character. But. So, and, and so what I'm saying, sometimes what we need is, uh, is to learn how to be a base and learn how to, how to abound. We need to learn these things, and God develops these things in us. But make sure that if you're going through it, God is working it together for good for you. If you are one of His, if you are called according to His purpose. So he describes further the, the material blessing. He says, The ox and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain, so I guess that means you're treating the animal food as well as you would treat the human food. Not the animal idolatry of our time. That's not what I'm talking about. But on every lofty mountain, every high hill, there will be streams of running water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. And that's where the message sort of takes a turn, and we're back to violence. Why does he have to go there to the day of slaughter when the towers are falling? Why can't he just talk about blessing and peace? Why can't we have a little Vivaldi spring? You know, all the, everything sounds nice and it's pretty and it, all the flowers are blooming. The oxen are eating salted fodder. Well, why does it have to then be the day of great slaughter? Because there's a war and there will not be peace in this war until overwhelming firepower destroys the efforts of the enemy. And that's Romans 16:20. Do you know Romans 1620? The God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord be with your spirit, as I think how it closes. The God of all peace will soon crush. See, those two crushing doesn't sound like a peaceful act. But if it is in defense of the, of the helpless, against the oppressor who is trying to destroy them if it's that 300, uh, what is it, 300 wind mag rifle trained on that lion that's about to, to, to grab the little kid and you take the lion down before it gets the kid. That's a very violent thing to do, but you saved that child's life. And so peace and joy and harmony because because the threat was reduced that's what is necessary and that's the that's that's what the bible is showing us so there's a war and so there has to be reckoning there has to be judgment there has to be this coming uh, time of tribulation and the conclusion with our Savior's second advent and victory and then you have the astronomical descriptions the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun that means brighter and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days. So there's a an accentuation, an expansion of the light of brightness, on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he's inflicted. If that is hundred, or sorry, if that's all those Assyrians that were killed and one, not hundred eighty five thousand Assyrians killed, um, in Isaiah's day, as we read later in chapter thirty seven. If that's what it's talking about, I'm, that's a struggle for me because it seems to be um, more catastrophic what he's describing. There's an argument out there that the big language of like places like verse 26 is designed just to show us that God's really upset or he's wanting to evoke emotions in you. It's not really going to be brighter. It'll just be like God is glorified somehow spiritually. And... Um, I'm I don't I don't know how to do that. Jesus raised people from the dead. People were taking handkerchiefs from Paul's uh, person who touched the handkerchief and then he, they would carry it to someone who had who was sick and the person would be healed by touching the handkerchief. We're talking about the God of miracles and um and the God who made the sun stand still and the God who has um done all the things, the Red Sea deliverance, the creation, the stabilization of all the universe, the everything god's really behind all that we see and it really is all miraculous so i don't like um, the the taming of places like verse 26 but i do think that this is eschatological i think that there is coming an end time salvation of israel i think verse 26 sounds like uh, the end of romans 11 all israel will be saved that's what we expect in the second coming of christ Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. turns the corner into our last portion of Isaiah chapter 30. The last portion of Isaiah 30 takes you from verses 27 through verse 33. The name of the Lord comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense as his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation. His tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. There's a lot of poetry there about God bringing wrath. You'll have, a, you'll have songs as in the night when you keep the festival. See, that this is a sweet and sour chicken, isn't it? It went from wrath and God breathing fire, basically, to you're having a song like when you're having a party at nighttime. <laughs> night parties are fun. Sabbath, by the way, the Sabbath celebration for Israel is always Friday night. Friday sunset, that's when the party starts. And it really, it's a celebration. It is not a song, a, like a somber time of, uh, uh, of retribution. It's not, that's not what it was. It was a family feast, family you know, gathering to praise God uh, for his provision and to rest from all their work. You keep the festival, and gladness of heart is when one marches to the sound of the flute. To go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel, and the Lord will cause the voice of his authority to be heard, and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger, and the flame of a consuming fire, cloud burst, downpour, and hailstones, for the voice at the voice of the Lord of Syria be terrified when he strikes with the rod. And this is why we say it's the current events. This is what is going to happen in the near term, as you keep reading in the thirties, toward the end of the thirties in Isaiah. And every blow of the rod of punishment, which the Lord will lay on him, will be with the music of tambourines and lyres. Man, he puts this. He, put, he keeps putting these themes together. There's wrath and joy. There's, there's sweet and sour or sweet and bitter. Um, the best way I could illustrate, well, you don't need me to illustrate it, but i just tell you it reminds me of, um, of, the, of the trap of chocolate and coffee. It's a trap because if you eat enough chocolate, well, that's too sweet, too, too much sweet. How can I, cu- oh, some black coffee will cut that. And if you have too much black coffee, that's too bitter. I need something sweet. That's a piece of chocolate. And you can just follow your, the horrible trap to get into. But, but that's what Isaiah's doing. He's juxtaposing. He's putting together the bitter and the sweet throughout this because the nature of man, the nature of, of history is that God has to bring wrath to bring To bring resolution to bring peace every blow of the rod of punishment which the lord lays on assyria will be with the music of tambourines and lyres for the people of judea and in battles they struggle with this battles brandishing weapons he'll fight them for topheth the place one perhaps description of the lake of fire has long been ready indeed it's been prepared for the king of assyria He's made it deep and large, a pyre of fire. That doesn't work well in English. You could have said a wood pile of fire. With plenty of wood, the breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. (laughs) What do you do with this section? Well, in verse, well, we don't want to do verse 8. We're way past verse 8. We're in verse 27 as we close. There is a method. Nope, not far enough. Too far. There we go. Behold, the name of Yahweh comes from a distance, literally. The sham of Yahweh comes from a distance. Burning is his anger, awesome is his splendor. His lips are filled with indignation. This word indignation is an interesting word, and it's variously translated. Usually it has to do with words of indignation, and some would translate it curses. But uh, it, isn't, it isn't true to say that God is seen here cursing. But cursing is to say malediction, say something bad or unfavorable or pronounce a judgment even. And that's what's happening is you have verbal Uh, A verbal indignation. His lips are filled with it. So he's saying something and you don't want to be the recipient of what he's saying. Remember in this passage, God is portrayed as breathing fire or fire and brimstone out of his mouth in judgment. You don't want to be on that side of God's judgment. His tongue is like a consuming fire. This description of God uh, sets some people's teeth on edge. We say, I don't want to serve a God that's going to be all wrathful and angry like that. Well, the problem is we don't understand righteousness. We don't understand the way God feels, if you will, about righteousness, how much he loves his righteousness, how that righteousness requires that for us to have a relationship with him, Christ has to be crushed for our sins on the cross, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, 12 verses of solid gold that you should probably, and I should probably memorize. You know, Isaiah 53 is just 12 verses. I counted the other day, I was shocked. It's amazing what scrolling through an electronic resource will give you, remind you of. His lips are filled with indignation. His tongue is like consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing uh, Nahal river. Nahal, an overflowing river. Unto the neck, that river reaches up as it's overflowing to shake the nations in a sieve, literally of destruction. The sieve of destruction, uh, maybe back and forth, but um, God is bringing the wrath. And placing, listen, the bridle which in the Hiphil stem causes someone to go astray on the jaws of the peoples. So the wrath of God is going to put them into going the wrong way. They're going to pursue error. God gives them bad leaders. One of the judgments God has through the book of Isaiah is he's giving them children for leaders and rulers that are evil. And that's one of God's judgments on the nations, just real quick, I want to wanna see if you notice something in the future of God's judgments on the nations. Revelation six is really a shocking passage um, for a lot of reasons, but I'll I'll show you why. Then I saw when the Lamb of chapter five had broken one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder come, and behold, I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Some people have misunderstood that that is a reference to Jesus, and it is not. It is the first seal of seven seals of judgment on the scroll of judgment on the earth dwellers introduced in chapter five. Nobody has the right to open the seal, and John's weeping because no one is found worthy. But then one, one as a lamb though slain appears. And he has the right, and he takes the scroll from the one on the throne, and he is now the lamb. Jesus can open the seal, and it's a seal of judgment. And the first seal, the first judgment in this scroll, this book of judgment against the earth dwellers, against the nations and their rebellion against God, which we're living through right now. The nations are in rebellion and uproar against God. Why, God, aren't you fixing it? He's coming. And the first seal is a ruler that God puts on the human race. God permits. God breaks the seal as though there is a restraint that he can't go forth until the seal is broken and now he's free to go do what he wants to do. The restraint is removed. This first judgment is the Antichrist. This is the ruler that the nations want. It's almost like a recap of 1 Samuel 8 where they want a king like the Gentiles. They want a Messiah after their own imaginations. And the people of the earth are going to worship this person who comes in, indwelt, empowered by Satan, the enemy of God, they're going to worship him as God. And that might sound difficult or farcical to imagine, but you need to pay attention to the culture you're in. How could it be that people would become so pagan as to worship a a human ruler as God? I mean, we're not that far gone, right? Have you seen the Thor hammers people are wearing around? You, you people under 30 see it. You know what I'm talking about. If you're in the culture, if you're talking to people, interacting with people, the thing is there been, have been a couple movies and there have been some TV shows about Viking culture in the medieval period and the, and the pagan practices of the Vikings. And you combine that with some Marvel comic stuff and all of a sudden people aren't wearing crosses necessarily. You look closely at those crosses around the neck. Sometimes it's a hammer hanging upside down because they have revived the worship of Thor, pagan god of thunder of the Norse. And you say, no, come on, Pastor Dave. It's it's a thing. It's called, it's so popular, it's being called neo-paganism. The worship of Thor and other uh, natural phenomena portrayed, personified as, as gods. And so... I don't find this difficult to imagine at all. Satan's got a powerful propaganda system, and he's got people deluded in all kinds of directions. I love to talk about some of his, his circus rings. He's like a ringleader. The earth is like his circus. The world's like a circus. He's got several rings going on. It's not a three-ring circus. It's like a, it's like a 30-ring circus. And all the different acts that he's got running that distract people from God... Um, and there's a fifth century one that's real popular, about 2 billion people or 1.5 billion people on the planet are in that ring. You got the ones that America has voiced on the earth and the supposed temples with angels on top, and, and they worship a Jesus that can't be the real Jesus and a God that was originally Adam. And I mean, <laughs> there are several different r- r- rings in this, in this circus. So, what I'm saying is um, God's wrath. Sometimes issues in places like verse 28, where he places the bridle which leads astray over the jaws of the peoples. This is perhaps a prophecy. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it necessarily is a prophecy of that event, but it could be. It describes what's going to happen and when that first seal is broken. The song will be for you like the celebration of a feast at night, and your joy of heart will be like when one talk, walks with the music of the flute to go into the mountain of Yahweh, to the rock of Israel. Why does God always show up as a rock? Why is He the rock? Do you, have you thought about this? Why the He's portrayed that way? Um, if you're going to build a house, you have to have a foundation, you put rock down. You find a way. We, today we make forms and pour liquid rock, but eventually it hardens into hard rock, and that's how we build houses. That's always how it's been. And, um, and the, 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 the strongest thing you can find in the field is the rock. That's why Jesus uses the rock illustration in Matthew 7 with the house on the rock versus the house on the sand. And so God is the most stable, sturdy, possible thing. We're not the rock. God is the rock. We sit on the rock. And if I do sit on the rock, what happens? I'm stabilized. That thing I'm sitting on won't give. And I'm stable and I'm secure. We hide ourselves in the cleft of the rock. That's overhead cover. That's anything that comes from the top. I've got the rock protecting me. Nothing's going to hit me. It's going to be harder than the rock. Arrows will bounce off of it. Smaller rocks will bounce off a larger rock. So this is how God has described the object of our faith. He's the stable, sturdy, faithful. We're the ones that are recognizing, trusting in him. And the mountain of the Lord is often a way of describing the coming kingdom of national Israel over all the nations. Yahweh will cause them to hear the majesty of his voice and the descent of his arm. He will cause them to see. When I read this in English, I didn't see the rhyme. Do you see the rhyme? It's really clear right there. When you, when you put it back in Hebrew order, he causes to hear hifil for shema and he caused them to see hifil for ra'ah and it's real straightforward and he's going to be the one that lets them hear and lets them see. He hear, they're going to hear the majesty of his voice they're going to see the descent of his arm. And in this case, you don't want to be witness to this because it's coming in furious anger, a flame of consuming fire, cloudbursts, heavy rain, hailstones. For from the voice of Yahweh, Assyria will be shattered. Assyria will be shattered. I think when you talk about the voice of the Lord and you're talking about his power to destroy, it reminds me of his power with which he created. The, the light was because he said so. And so it's just a reminder of the omnipotence of God, and it's a poetic way of doing it. When with a rod he strikes, the voice of Yahweh will, dis- will, will destroy them when he strikes them with a rod. And every passing of the rod of discipline which Yahweh will cause to rest upon him will be with tambourines and zithers. And that's probably a better translation than lyres, but it's still a stringed instrument of the Middle East. And in battles probably of waving weapons, he will fight with them. That word waving weapons hard, it could be in, in, in dances or something because we've got tambourines in the previous line. But anyway, we'll go with battles of waving weapons. Most English translations go that way. He will fight with them. So there's a, there's a joy to those being delivered. My, my Lord is coming to save me. And there's a horror to those being delivered uh, that, that are that are that are that are they're they're being delivered from the enemy in other words has the wrong person on the other side of the battlefield and uh, you don't want to end up like them and it closes before a set For set in order from before is Topheth. Literally, what has been established or prepared from beforehand, could be yesterday or for long ago, is Topheth, this place of final judgment. Indeed, for the king it has been prepared. It's been made deep and large, a wood pile of fire and plenty of wood. The breath of Yahweh... Are we heard his breath like a river? Like a river of brimstone sets it alight. So God is actually portrayed as breathing a fiery magma of brimstone to set a fire, the funeral pyre for the Assyrians. And again, I think this is a near-term prophecy for the most part in this section of what God is going to do to the Assyrians. And it's before Hezekiah leads a repentance. It's before he says, If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. And I'll hear them and heal their land. That's, that's a Hezekiah promise when Hezekiah led a re- repentance in national Israel. What can you take away from this passage, though? What's the big insight? Because God is portrayed in many ways as being a God of wrath and rage, righteous rage. I mean, fiery brimstone coming out of his mouth. That's rage. In righteousness against the enemies of his people. Well, I think that this is calling uh, for all of us to embrace one of the greatest presents you can give yourself. It is called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the greatest. It's the highest. It's the attitude with which we approach God. He isn't all just Happy to be there, that you're here, and that it's all good, happy, happy. Come as you are, and uh, nothing needs to change. He's the God that calls us to see ourselves in light of his righteousness and see our desperate need for a Savior and cling only to him. Otherwise, the lake of fire, the lake of fire which contradicts neither God's righteousness nor his love. What is the fear of the Lord? It is a recognition, like we just read, of God's wrath on enemies of Israel. A recognition of God's power, of God's righteousness, of God's justice, executing righteousness. We need to know that that's the God that we serve. We need to know, as Jesus said, that we should not be afraid of men who can destroy our bodies only. We should fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And this is called the fear of the Lord. It is the baseline for relationship with God. It's recognizing that God is infinitely powerful, righteous, and just, and that's bad for us if we're wicked because justice is going to deal with wickedness and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. The fear of the Lord is is an awareness of our weakness in the face of God's power also. It is what we teach little children. We say he is weak, but we, we, (laughs) we are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. We are weak, but he is strong. That's what we teach the children to sing, and this is this is the fear of the Lord. To see omniscience, he knows better. Omnipotence. He's all powerful. I don't know as much, and I can't do I can't do anything compared to what God can do. The fear of the Lord is an awareness of our liability to God's wrath for wickedness. And that is Isaiah 6, and that's where you and I need to live. We need to be mourning and and poor in spirit in Matthew 5 because we've been to Isaiah 6 and we've with Isaiah seen the holiness of God and said, I'm ruined because I'm sinful. We need to live there. We need to hate our sin and we need to see the difference and we need to embrace God's righteousness and just cling to him and let ourselves go. And for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, this is an awareness in the fear of the Lord of our liability that we owe God's wrath for our wickedness, but we don't have to pay, and that's the grace of God. Without the fear of the Lord, there's really very little context for the gospel and the magnificent grace of God where he crushed Christ for our sins on the cross. The fear of the Lord is a baseline sense of humility before God's awesome glory. It is the simplest statement of all theology that you have to say, and I tell my kids They could tell you, they could all get up here and preach a sermon to you, that the first thing you have to learn is that God is God and I am not. The baseline humility that God is awesome and glorious and I am his creature, but I am not him and I don't want to take his place. I feel as though I'd like to from my flesh, but if I think it through, I know I don't. A baseline sense of humility. And when I say we feel like taking his place, and you're like, oh, I don't ever feel that way. Anytime you want to have your way without regard or concern for what God wants, that's you trying to take his place. You're saying my will and not his will. Anytime. No, I'm just ignoring him. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that would be to take his place. There is no neutral ground. The fear of the Lord is our default attitude toward God. It should be our default And it is the consequence of faith in him. If you don't believe in him, then you won't have the fear of the Lord. And if you don't have the fear of the Lord, then you don't really believe what the Bible's saying about him. And in that moment where we lack the fear of the Lord, it's a great indicator. Take your temperature. Do I fear the Lord? No, I'm not trusting in him. I don't believe in what the Bible says about him. And if your answer is, no, 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 I've got the insurance. I've got Christ. So the wrath of God doesn't come upon me. I don't have any expectation of going to hell. I get to go to heaven because I've trusted in Christ. I will say to you from the scriptures, you have understood part of the story. But there's a lot more to the story than whether we go to hell. There's a lot more to life and what God wants for you than you get in to heaven. You're actually looking for the entire experience. Believe me, you want the entire experience. Don't believe me, believe God. And it really is through the pathway of the fear of the Lord Uh, which is hand in hand with faith in him. And finally, the fear of the Lord is a safeguard to guide our choices. The fear of the Lord is a safeguard to guide our choices. Why? Why do I need to fear God before I do this or that thing? Because if he doesn't like what I'm doing, then I can expect as his child a thrashing from the rod of correction. Hebrews 12 says that if we're really his kids, then he really whips us. I mean, spanks us, corrects us with the rod of correction. And it hurts and he's good at it. And he's very accurate and he knows just how far to go where it's excruciating and we will get back on the path real quick. We should be as believers, as his little children, we should have that healthy fear of the Lord that children have in their respect and awe of their parents. But let's take that from Respectful children to their human parents and expand it to an infinite degree because that's the differential back to differentials between us and God. Embrace the fear of the Lord. There are dozens of passages that describe it, and the place that I wanted to read before I ran out of time was Job chapter 28. Job 28 is a treasure house. Pointing you to one massive, beautiful conclusion. He goes through all the rich metals and jewels that you could think of, and he says, The greatest is wisdom. Go for wisdom. It's all the jewels. And at the conclusion in Job 28, he says, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. It's the stinger on the, the PN to wisdom all through Job 28. It's absolutely beautiful and indispensable. Come, you children, Psalm 34, 13, 11 says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, the consequence that he describes came upon them. <clears throat> so much in the scriptures, and uh, we'll pick this up next time as we turn the corner into Isaiah 31. Father, thank you for the riches of your grace and the challenge to the fear of the Lord, the challenge that it is to us to embrace this life-giving wisdom, this perspective that tells the truth moment by moment in our lives about who you are and who we are and what we're for. Father, we desperately need the fear of the Lord to live our lives, to be pleasing to you. We need this wisdom and I pray you'd impress it upon us and then we walk with you Worthy of our calling with you as you truly are. We pray in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen.